Welcome to Don't Box Me In, the show that features conversations with people from all walks of life, talking about their extraordinary experiences and inspirational messages. Now, here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello, 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 and welcome once again to this week's edition of Don't Box Me In. I am your host, Lana Reed. My guest today is Miss Nancy Verdon, who is a suicide attempt survivor. Nancy was diagnosed with recurrent major depression in 2005, and she's also married for over 30 years to a man with the same diagnosis. Nancy has been both the patient and the key support person um, in this struggle. Her goal is to encourage those in emotional pain and to help the supporters be effective while maintaining their own peace of mind. I'm very happy that her journey has led her here to Don't Box Me In, and I'm excited to have her on the show today. So, Nancy, welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm so glad to be here with you today. Thank you. Hi, Lana. Hi. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. <laughs> good, good, good. So um, if I read correctly, Nancy, it says here that you live close to Philadelphia now, city of brotherly love. Have you always lived in that direction? <laughs> no, I'm actually from Cleveland, Ohio. I've been out here about five years. Oh, okay, okay. So a Midwest girl there. Yeah, I am. <laughs> okay, okay. And um, you and your husband, how long have you guys have been married now? Well, our marriage is ending, actually, Lana, but I ha- we had been married for um, over 30 years. Okay, okay. So, <laughs> All yeah, right. and, we, bo- and he- we both had the diagnosis of major depression, which didn't make things easier. Yeah, I, I was kind of, you know, when I was reading over all the information and getting ready for the show today, you know, and, and reading about you, that was the first thing that kind of struck me is how much of a struggle that must be for two people to be diagnosed with the same illness. And because you need such a support system around you when you're going through those kind of things. And, you know, how can how can I help you when I'm trying to help myself kind of thing that that was that's what popped up in my head. Uh, kind of. Yeah, instant. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I feel that we were very, uh, very uh, blessed that um, both of us were not, that I can recall, uh, maybe once or twice in the deepest parts of depression at the same time. Okay. So there was, there was something of a, <laughs> of a back and forth, but neither one of us were very good at supporting the other. That's the truth. Okay, but you guys managed to make it work for 30-plus years, though. <laughs> we tried. <laughs> we tried. You, you succeeded in something. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of time. That's a lot of chunk of time. So I'm assuming that... You guys um, were married somewhere in, in the Midwest, so you guys started off in Cleveland, and that journey took you to where you're at now? You guys are both in Philadelphia now currently, if I'm understanding? Yes, yes. Oh, no, okay. his, his job brought us out here. Okay. And, oh. um, yeah, we were married at the ripe old age of 20. Okay, youngsters, okay. <laughs> and um, so I'd like to think that, you know, 30-some years later, I'm not that old yet, but... <laughs> yeah, you still, rate, you, yeah, you still, you still got a little shake in your tail feather there. You still, <laughs> <I hope so. laughs> okay, okay. So, um, I guess we will go to 2005. You yeah. were diagnosed with um, recurrent major depression, and let's just reflect back to that moment when the doctor's telling you, "This is, you know, Nancy. This is kind of where we think you're at." Um, do you think? Prior to that, there was some warning signs or some things that you noticed that you just weren't paying attention to? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I, now that I know what a depression episode is like, I can name um, three or four, uh, three, I think, episodes mm-hmm. prior to 2005, but I didn't know what they were. 
And mostly I just, you know, beat up on myself thinking that I was being bad or, you know, uh, inferior in some way. But I didn't get the medications either until 2005. So I was struggling with major depression for most of my life, um, off and on. And until 2005, I was doing it without medication. It's made a world of difference to have a diagnosis, to know what I'm dealing with, Mm -hmm. and then to be able to have treatment that that works. Okay. So for the audience who might not really understand what the diagnosis of recurrent major depression is, could you shed a little light on that for us? Sure. Um, Now, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a doctor. I want to qualify that right away. Okay. Okay. What I say should not be taken as mental health care. Gotcha. What I'm giving you is information that I've received from other people who are professionals, and this should be double-checked. You should look it up for yourself and find out um, from, a, from a professional yourself what it is that, that is true for you. Mm-hmm. My understanding is that if your sadness or anxiety lasts for at least two weeks, it's time to see a professional. Okay. Um, there's usually hopelessness pessimism, guilt, worthlessness. Sometimes there's irritability and tearfulness and, oh, oh my goodness, there's a loss of energy. Physically, mm-hmm. you don't feel, I, I, I didn't feel like I could even just really function. Mm-hmm. I would have times where I didn't feel like I could get out of bed. And okay. there was nothing wrong with my limbs, <laughs> okay. but I couldn't, there was no energy. And then your motivation is sucked out of you too. And there are other symptoms as well. But for me personally, it has always um, started out with isolation and withdrawal and then moved into um, hopelessness after Mm -hmm. that. Okay. And so you're saying this, for the most part, lasts for a stretch of time. I think I heard you say something like two weeks. So you're just basically walking around with the gray cloud of rain just over you and that feeling of, I just can't shake this for a certain period of time. Um, And... I guess before you got your diagnosis, you just kind of felt that this was a normal occurrence or this is just just the way people feel? Sometimes I thought it was the way people feel. Other times I was very well aware that it was different because I didn't hear other people talking about the things that I was feeling. Okay. Um, In 2005, there was a, and there has always been for me, and I I believe there is, just from talking to other people and my husband included, I... I believe there's a buildup to, it's not like you just wake up one day and you're majorly depressed. It's, mm-hmm. um, there, there are things that lead you to, lead you that way. At least for me, the clues have, have been that I start to feel really kind of sad. Maybe the loss of energy, maybe the kind of hopeless thinking, inferior thinking. Um, my self-talk <laughs> becomes <laughs> negative, okay? okay? And those kinds of things are warning signs for me. So that, Unfortunately, in 2005, I was not able to find help until it was pretty late in the process. And by the time I found help, they were ready to put me in the hospital. So that was the first time I was hospitalized, and and that is the time that I received the diagnosis and started to take medication. Okay. Um, In January of 2011, so we're moving up six years, I actually attempted suicide. Mm-hmm. And what led to that was a very similar process to what had happened in, earlier, and that was that I started to feel sad, started to feel alone, started to feel like, you know, I, could, I was having trouble functioning. 
And this time I sought help earlier okay. than I did the time before. Okay. But in case you're wondering why my medication stopped working, it's because I stopped taking them. Oh, okay. I got to the point where I thought, I don't need these anymore. I'm good to go. And I stopped taking them. And that is when major depression gets its little foothold because it is a disease. It's not something you decide to wake up and have. So when I sought help, it was a little late in the process. I was already pretty far down the the continuum, you might say, as far as feeling hopeless. And um, it was it was just a little too late, a little too little, a little too mm-hmm. late. Mm-hmm, and um, so I, I ended up attempting suicide, but then I started to get some serious help. <laughs> help. Okay, okay, obviously, and, and thankfully, because you're here talking with me today, and um, I want I want to talk a little bit more in detail about the suicide attempt. But before that, um, I want to kind of backtrack again to 2005 because you mentioned that you'd kind of always felt you'd had these moments of depression, these episodes, but you weren't really, you didn't have a handle on them. I'm curious as to what was the trigger in 2005 that actually made you go seek help? What happened that said this time, or did somebody say, Nancy, no, we're going to the doctor? Oh, no, it was it was my decision. Um, I Again, it was a longer process. I have to say that there were, there were some deaths. Um, in my family, uh, pretty close together in the okay. previous um, year and a half, mm-hmm. and that was part of it. One of them was my mother, and it was it was that plus just feeling a sense of aloneness. Our marriage has never been um, as much as I'd like to say we uh, did well for thirty years. We did not. Um, okay. It was it was lonely, and okay. I felt alone. But I also felt like I couldn't tell anybody what I was feeling and what I was going through in my marriage. So I kept it to myself. And all of these things are really not helpful. <laughs> major depression, okay? Yeah. So, and again, I didn't have any medications and I didn't have any treatment. I sought treatment um, earlier in 2004, and it's a sad story, but the counselor ended up not really... Um, she should not be in the business, frankly, and that's mm-hmm. not. Other people have told me that too when I tell the story. But so I didn't get help, and um, that is how it continued to slide down. That was the first time that I had considered going to a hospital or upping the care. At that time, I still felt like it was something I was supposed to get a handle on, that I was supposed to do, that all I needed to do was talk to somebody and I'd be fine. And none of those things were true. Yeah, I mean, so, I think, unfortunately, yeah. there's like this social stigma with a lot of us that, especially females, you know, we're supposed to put on our superwoman cape and we're supposed to handle it all and, you know, we're supposed to be able to absorb all of these things. But sometimes it does get a little overwhelming if, and you don't have, you know, you're, you're, you're constantly told you're not supposed to talk to anybody, you're supposed to handle it and suck it up or whatever. But, you know, especially in your case, you do need somebody to, uh, talk to somebody to guide you, somebody to help you and say, look, Nancy, what you're feeling is not nothing, not anything that you should have to take on by yourself. You do probably need some outside help. And, and uh, you know, unfortunately, in your case and a lot of other cases, it does take us a minute to arrive at that point. It does take us a while to arrive to that point. And something to consider, too, is that um, I was in the religious circles as a Christian. I was uh, in evangelical churches. And I'm not painting a wide brush over evangelical, mm-hmm. but I don't want to be misunderstood here. But in my particular case, mm-hmm. um, 
there was there was a feeling, and it was probably more me than anything anybody else mm-hmm. was saying or implying. But I felt like if I suggested that I was suffering, that I was going to be perceived as less of a Christian. Mm-hmm. And um, so there was that stigma, and there is stigma in the church, unfortunately. It's not everywhere, it's not everyone, but there is stigma in the church. And that was that was hard for me. Um, but I have to say that at the time, I, I it's hard to remember this exactly. I'd have to think about it. But I don't think I was aware of a need to talk to people. I think I felt that it was supposed to be my problem and that I wasn't supposed to share it. So that that was my attitude for years and years and years. So I, I just stuffed it. Gotcha. You know, and, and you do bring up an interesting um thing that does need to be pointed out, you know, especially with the church, you know, there's this concept, there's this belief if you have faith, if you believe in God or, you know, uh, your creator, that that is supposed to be the end all to be all to your problems and you're not supposed to feel depression or, you know, worry or concern or whatever. You're supposed to be able to, you know, be in a position to place your faith, you know, in your creator and, and that is not always the case and, you know, I do think that we do probably need to do some do some work in this area to say, you know, oh, even yeah. e- even the even the most religious of us, we stumble and yeah. fall, and that and that is okay. I mean, you know, we all need help. So yeah. um, that that is a great issue, Nancy. We're yeah. going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back right after this. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello, 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 and welcome back. Uh, today I've got the opportunity to spend with Miss Nancy Verdon. She is uh, has been diagnosed with recurrent major depression, but has gone on to author a couple of books, a few books, one of them called Called to Live, A Chronicle of Recovery After Attempted Suicide. And uh, before the break, we were kind of discussing... Uh, what what it feels like to um, go through recurrent major depression and one of the things that we did bring up is it was not only you going through this also your husband of over 30 years um, was also diagnosed with this so I'm wondering at what point of the marriage was he diagnosed with it was it before you or after you it was before me he went also several uh, years without understanding what he had and then in 1992 he um, you know what, I'm going to rephrase. I, I, I don't think he was diagnosed in 1992. I believe he went to his general practitioner, mm-hmm. and his general practitioner gave him a medication that didn't work for my husband. Mm-hmm. And this is one of many reasons, because I've heard this story repeatedly, that we need to go to a psychiatrist, not mm-hmm. our GP, when we, have, when we think we may have um, mental issues. Mm-hmm. Because a psychiatrist is a specialist. So just like we might go to a um, gastroenterologist for abdominal mm-hmm. issues, we go to a psychiatrist for brain issues. And so he was he was not treated as well as he could have been, but it was in 1997 that he finally got to a psychiatrist and started to get on meds that would that would work. Mm-hmm. He struggled with um, I believe they call it uh, treatment resistant. That's what they call it. Yes. When you have trouble um, having medications that actually work. And it, it took him some time to find some that would actually uh, kick in for him. And that was unfortunate. It was a hard path for him. 
I was very fortunate. I did not have to follow that path. The medications I was given worked right away. Okay. Now, as the wife of somebody struggling um, with mental issues, what do you recall being the the loved one of somebody going through this being like? What was your what were your days with your husband like when he was not getting treatment? Okay. Well, um, I want to separate depression from personality okay. issues. Gotcha. His, his depression led him to be more withdrawn and um, not interested maybe as much as uh, trying to have a relationship with people. That was the key component to mm-hmm. the struggles in our marriage, but it wasn't all from depression, so I want to make okay. it clear. Okay. Um, it, was, it was hard not to take it all personally, because okay. when we're depressed, we can be very needy, and we can seem like we're all about just us, self-centered, egocentric, um, give me, give me, give me. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's unfortunate that when we are depressed, we pretty much have tunnel vision. All we can see is our pain. And that is the truth of the disease. And it's hard for anyone on the outside to see, of course, that the other person's reality is pain. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to feel like, oh, they're treating me poorly, you know. Mm-hmm taking it personally, and I, I did that many times. <laughs> it's a very narcissistic behavior then, I guess. It, I'm sorry, say it again? It's a very narcissistic behavior, kind of like self-absorbed about me, and like you said, you can, you're really only focusing on yourself. It's hard to, um, you know, mirror back and say, you know, what the other person might be thinking, what the other person might be going through or whatever. You know, you're just oh, really, you're really in your own pit. You're in your own pit. I don't want to use the word narcissistic, even in the sense of describing the behavior, because people that I know, including myself, who have been severely depressed, do not want to feel that way. Gotcha. In the middle of it, I don't want to hurt anybody. Mm-hmm. As bad as I feel, and I'm and I'm grabbing at people and saying, "Save me, save me!" I know I'm doing that, and I don't like it. Okay. But I don't have, I don't see any other options. I'm drowning. Okay. So. You know, you send a lifeguard to me and, and he, you know, I grab at him. You know, maybe I'll make him drown too. But that's, <laughs> that's what depression does. Gotcha. You don't realize, you know, that you're taking the whole ship down with you, you Even know. If you do realize it. You can't. I don't feel like I have a lot of options. There's the option of withdrawing and saying I'm not going to tell anybody. There's that. There's the option of uh, lying and saying I'm not feeling, you know, I'm just great. Yeah. But when when I feel like I am trying to grasp for life and there's nothing to hang on to, I'm going to grab people and be be demanding and needy, and that's unfortunate. But it's true, it's a disease. Okay, okay, and you know, I guess that is the the process of the supporters around you um, and the the healing process and the therapy that they probably have to go to as well so we can all become whole and complete together is that you have to be taught to understand the behaviors of, you know, somebody going through depression so that you, you can understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, and help them deal with it when they are doing it. Knowledge is enormously helpful in any struggle, in my opinion, because you know what you're working with when you know mm-hmm. what, what is going on. Um, depression is simply not simplistic. There are It's complex. It's a health issue. And it's not something that we can easily overcome or even explain, really. 
there are some commonalities between people with depression. You can say, oh, they pretty much isolate, they pretty much feel hopeless, and you can relate certain behaviors to, to depression as a more common symptom, but you cannot point to one person and say, this is what they're feeling, this is why they're feeling it, and this is how it's gonna, they're going to get well, because every single person is different. True, true. And I also think, you know, as a whole, society has a lot of stigma when it comes to depression because the the majority of the population kind of dismisses it and says, oh, just get over it, you know, eat you a gallon of ice cream, it'll be better in the morning. But they don't really understand that for the person going through depression, it is it is a continuum. It's not an easy fix. It's not a, I wake up in the morning and I'm better and, you know... Um, you know, when there's no sympathy or understanding around you, that can only exacerbate the situation. Oh, yes, absolutely. You can imagine if um, if you had a, let's say you had a broken limb, okay, let's say you had a broken mm-hmm. arm, and you were the one who normally mowed the lawn, mm-hmm. and you didn't mow the lawn because you had a broken arm. Mm-hmm. Chances are, people around you would not be so annoyed. They would say, <laughs> oh, I can't wait till your arm's fixed because I wish you were mowing the lawn again. But mm-hmm. they're not going to be annoyed with you or angry. At the same time, when you have depression, it's something you can't see or measure on the outside. So it looks like you're just sitting there refusing to mow the lawn, and that's not true. Mm-hmm. So you've got people saying, you've been pulling this stuff for years, or something like, I'm going to fix you, I'm going to make you get up out of bed, or I'm going to make you, I'm going to nag you until you work, <laughs> that kind of thing. And it's not helpful. I, I know people don't generally intend to be hurtful, but it's not helpful. And um, I saw a little cartoon, and it was on Facebook, so maybe other people have seen it too. This little picture of a, of a cartoon guy um, and his friend, and his friend says, it, the cartoon guy says, I don't feel good, and he's sitting there with his head buried in his hands. And his friend um, ends up saying to him what, you need for me or something to that to that effect and do you want do you want anything from me and i believe the little depressed man says no and the other one just says okay i'll just be with you and Mm. sits with him under a tent like the guy's in his darkness and his friend just comes along and sits with him in his darkness and Mm -hmm. that is huge just being with somebody just being there accepting and not judging not trying to fix them not trying to change everything but just being there, I care about you. I'm not going to try to change who you are. Unfortunately, you're going through this, and I'm sorry for that, and I'm sorry for your pain, but I'm here with you. Good, good. And, you know, that I think, like, it's, people need to understand that. Now that you bring that up, I'm wondering, in 2005, when you got your diagnosis, uh, two questions, did you have somebody there for you like that? And then the second one is, what treatment plan did the doctors put you on? Okay. Well, in, back then I had a pastor who was willing to talk to me, which was okay. very nice of him. Um, I used up a lot of his time and energy. <laughs> 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 I look back on that and I think, oh, my gosh. <laughs> but I did, and he was willing, and it was very kind of him. Um, at the same time, I also saw a professional counselor who was just, you know, a regular once a week visit, and she tried to touch on the more um, scientific, you might say, therapeutic issues, as opposed to me just talking about how how I felt. Um, I stopped treatment, though, 
at the end of 2005, I continued with my meds, but I stopped treatment. I stopped talking. And that, I believe, is a key to why six years later I ended up suicidal. I think that the treatment that gets us well is the treatment that keeps us well. And as long as we're continuing to talk to people, reach out for support, being honest with people and open, I had a lot of problems being honest and open with people, even my friends. Okay. So that was very limiting for me. And then when we moved out to Pennsylvania and knew nobody, and I didn't really have my husband's support, I stopped taking my medications. How brilliant was that? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it, was, it wasn't just a guarantee. It wasn't a guarantee that I would be suicidal, but it was, it was really flirting with it, okay. even okay. though I was unaware I was flirting with it. Okay, so... It- it's kind of understandable, like you, you moved and some things happened and you're kind of sinking, so you stop your meds. But I'm wondering, in 2005, what made you stop going to see somebody? Was it did you think you were better or you just were uncomfortable talking to somebody? I would say it was more the second one. Okay. It's so okay. important to find a therapist that is somebody you can relate to and that you enjoy talking to. That is so key. And it's unfortunate that when we're depressed, we can't really gather the energy to search for a therapist. That is some way that support can come in in a big way and help out. Um, you want to ask certain questions about therapists. You want to find out if they're licensed. You want to find out how much experience they have. You want to find out if they're experienced in what you think you have or if you also mm-hmm. have a diagnosis. Are they experienced in that field? You want to ask what kinds of therapy um, approaches they use because maybe mm-hmm. one won't work for you because you know you know it just won't. And then personality. And I was amazed when I found out that it's actually encouraged to um, interview therapists before you go. How impossible is that when you can't <laughs> get out of bed? All of that. So it's really important, I think, for supports to be on the on the stick with that. And to understand or ask the person who's struggling, you know, what do you think you could talk to somebody like this or what are you looking for? And the support can make the phone calls, even go with them on their first visit. That's, gotcha. that's huge. For me, the therapist that I found in 2005 was really not helping me. The pastor was helping me. And when he moved out of town, that's why I quit all treatment. Okay. Okay. That all comes together. All right. And then, and then, you know, and like I said, if you're you're with your husband who has has his own issues, you don't really have the the home support system to say, you know, hey, babe, I, I will go and talk to the doctor to see if this is a good fit for you because I know right now you probably can't do these right. interviews. So you just really didn't have a, a system in place at that well, particular time. No, to, yeah. No. No. You're right. I didn't have the system. I also didn't know that you could do that. You know, try to find a therapist that was fit for you. I didn't have that concept. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. All right, Nancy, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. Let's return to Don't Box Me In with your host, Lana Reed. Hello, hello, welcome back. I am with 
Miss Nancy Verdon today. She is the author of uh, two books called To Live, A Chronicle of Recovery After Attempted Suicide, and also Always the Fight, A Living Testimony of What Only God Can Do. Those were the two. There's, there's one more, right, Nancy, or am I missing it? No, there's one more. It's not out yet. It's oh, okay. just now going to printing. It is called They Were Real, it's Short Story Gateways into the Thoughts of Bible Characters. So okay. what I have done is taken some very famous people, and the Bible's not particularly descriptive of what they were feeling and thinking at the time that they went through um, certain moments in their lives. And I tried to, I, fi- I have fictionalized it and okay. tried to insert what they may have been thinking or feeling. Okay, okay, gotcha. Because I knew I had read that there was three, and I had only came across two titles, so I wanted to make sure I got the third one out of there. So, um, <laughs> no problem. Um, let me go to 2000, January 2011. So okay. we, we're, we're six years. We know we have some issues that we're struggling with. We're kind of in and out of counseling. We're in and out of medication. 2011, um, so to speak, the bottom falls out. Yeah. Um, what, wh- what led up to that for you? Well, it was the huge part of it was the combination of being in Pennsylvania by myself and having okay. a marriage that wasn't working. Okay. Those were the two biggest Um, plays in the game because I was feeling very, very alone. Um, The second player in the game was that I stopped taking my meds. I can't explain to you why I did. (laughs) Okay. Okay? That was probably a symptom of of distorted thinking anyway. Okay. Well, just to cut you off real quick, um, I know in past conversations, a lot of people cut their meds because it makes them feel a certain type of way. Were you having any reactions, negative reactions to your medication? No, my mind started to tell me I didn't need them. Okay, okay. And that, that's part of the disease itself, actually. I, I unfortunately know of someone who killed himself because he just felt he didn't need it anymore. Mm. And he stopped taking his meds and it just became too much and he died. This is a, fa- this is a potentially fatal disease. Okay. So taking the meds is important and it was, it was foolish of me to stop. Okay. Are you comfortable sharing um, how you... Attempted to take your life? Uh, no, that's actually something I don't share. Okay. Um, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that it's private, and another is that there's there's a real danger when you're talking to somebody who's feeling hopeless, and I don't know if they're listening or not, okay? Gotcha, gotcha. But if you're talking to somebody who's feeling hopeless and suicidal, really the last thing you need to do is be giving them ideas. Don't now, give them a playbook. Think, right, exactly. Um, that's it's yeah it's not wise (laughs) okay but you are here with me today like i said so somebody rescued you and you were um after the attempt you were immediately put into a hospital of some sort i'm going to assume yes i was i was in a um hospital for for three weeks two of those weeks were on the psych ward one week was in the icu and medical ward okay okay did you get uh what you felt at that time was quality help or or no oh yeah oh my goodness yes i was i i didn't want it you understand i was still suicidal i was upset that i was there Mm -hmm. so i was i was um unhappy (laughs) Mm -hmm. that people were trying to help me and my original plan was as soon as i get out of here i can do what i want to do okay so what what started to change that for me was when the psychiatrist looked at me and he said i believe you I know you don't care, 
Mm -hmm. I was blown away by that. I'd not had my feelings validated like that before. And that was just enormous to me, that simple statement. Another thing that helped was that they had art therapy. I am somewhat of an artist, at least I play with it. Uh And I had tucked that part of my life away, not feeling like I deserved to have that just for me. So when they started to bring out um, art supplies, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I became a kid again in a way, (laughs) you know, playing with art supplies. And that gave me a little bit of a idea that maybe this is something I could incorporate into my life later. That idea was just a seed, but but those were some real, real things. Okay, so you said you spent three weeks in the hospital and then you're released. Now, my concern would be that you're released back into the environment that put you in the hospital in the first place. Yeah, that was my concern, too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like I'm back in this you know, situation where I don't like, I'm in a new place, I don't know anybody, my marriage is kind of on the rocks. I mean, how do you continue to heal once you get released? Well, they didn't just leave me to the wolves. They okay. made sure there was a follow-up plan, and I, I went from the hospital to what they call a partial hospitalization, which is where you just go in every day for quite a few hours, actually. For me, it was five hours a day. And by the time you get home, it's about the time, supposedly, that maybe people in your family are coming home from work. And so the theory is you're never alone. Um, In the meantime, while you're at the partial hospitalization, there's therapy, there's people who talk to you who there's a, a room full or a handful of people who understand exactly how you feel. And... That is helpful in itself to to not feel so alone. I was not alone when I came out of the hospital. That was very very important. <laughs> okay. After okay. partial hospitalization, excuse me, partial hospitalization. Okay, you say the word. I got, I got it. I got it. I got it. I moved into what they call an intensive outpatient program. You might have heard the initials IOP. Uh-huh. That is what it stands for. You go in nearly every day for two hours or so, and you're in a group, and you are focused on the, on depression, basically on recovery of depression. Everybody in the room, well, at least in my experience, everybody in the room was suicidal or had attempted suicide. Um, so that was that was the focus of that IOP. And after a few weeks of that, then you go and move into your individual therapy with with one person. Okay. Now, I I know you said that, you know, you and your husband were, the marriage was kind of on the rocks at this particular time. But I'm curious, since he's already going through his own mental issues, where was he at when you were going through this? Was he like, aha, this is me too, let me get in here, or I support you, or, I mean... Where was he at in all of this? It's a complicated marriage because we're talking about a combination of serious um, emotional abuse mm-hmm. and major depression. Okay. So to get into that and explain that would be pretty complex. Okay. At the time, though, when when I was in the hospital, um, he was he was vowing to change his ways, and he was supportive for a while. Okay. Yes. Okay, okay, good. Okay, so, you know, you did have a, because at this particular time, I'm assuming he's your closest family member. I mean, everybody else was a distance away from you, and you had no friends, so besides the people that you had met while you went therapy, you know, that that was your closest support system. Yes. Okay, okay. Now, um, 
this whole process for you was how long? Um, Are you still in, you're still in therapy now? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. I'll go back to my statement that the treatment that gets you well is the treatment that keeps you well. Okay. So I'm still there and I intend to be there um for a long time to come. I don't I'm kind of assuming I'll be there for the rest of my life, but let me qualify that. Um it was very intense at the beginning, as I said, with partial hospitalization and IOP. And then it moved into seeing my therapist, and, and I maintained uh, attending a once-a-week depression support group. And that has pretty much been the maintenance for the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, I believe, when I get through this separate marriage separation and some mm-hmm. other major things in life, that, and as I learn better coping mechanisms, which I am, mm-hmm. and as I get stronger and healthier, in my thinking patterns and so on, that there will come a day, I assume, that I won't need to be going every week. That, you know, maybe I drop the support group, maybe I only see my therapist occasionally, but I'm always going to keep that in my life because I need to have, I need to have that. I I have a disease that tells me I'm fine, that I don't need to take my meds anymore, that, oh, you're good today, so you're good forever. And mm-hmm. that's not always an aspect of, of major depression for people, but it is it is part of how I think. And so I need to be in front of a therapist just even for a dose of reality every now and then. Gotcha, gotcha. So, so I'm, yeah. I'm assuming, listening to you talk, um, this happened in 2011, it's now 2014, so this is three years here. Yeah. You've been in therapy, um, but listening to you talk, you, you are willing to admit that you still have bad days. Yes, ma'am, I do. Okay, and <laughs> even even in therapy, even with the medication, what does Nancy feel like on her bad days? Well, the bad days now are not like the bad days used to be. Okay. Um, I would say there has been uh, there have been periodic big turnarounds. You know, it's like. I, for for several months, honestly, it took 16 months for me to get to the point where I was able to thank the person who put me in the hospital mm. and tell them I was glad I was alive. 16 months. Good stuff. Okay. After that, it took quite a bit more time for me to get around to changing my goal from not feeling suicidal to trying to um, move into enjoying life. It it those changes. Take pla- it took place for me over a period of time. Um, right now, I'm at the place where my worst days are ones that I feel I have some say over. I no, I no longer feel like I'm a victim over my worst days okay. because I'm healthier-minded. Um, I'm not in the middle of my disease right now. It does not have me. I have it, and that's always the case but when you're in the middle of an episode you don't feel like you have it (laughs) and um so i have the ability to do what i need to do to move out of this bad moment my my latest bad moment was actually this last sunday Mm -hmm. and i had i got up in the morning feeling like i didn't want to go to church i didn't want to see anybody and i had that option of staying home and isolating which is never helpful Mm-hmm. But it's what I felt like doing. Mm-hmm. Or reach out and grab some support. And it took me almost all day to make that decision. 
I spent most of the day depressed and starting to feel hopeless. And then uh, by evening, somewhere around there, I started to reach out. This oh. is, yeah, so bad days still occur, yes. Okay, bad days still occur, but with your treatment and with your medication, the, the time periods are not lasting as long as they were in the past. No, I've learned a lot. And um, like I said, major depression isn't, uh, isn't, I'm not having, the disease isn't acting up right now. Okay, okay. So, you know, and I always tell people uh, any kind of progress is, is good progress, slow, piece by piece, you know, small. So, like I said, the fact yes. that, you know, it was only a few hours, half a day on Sunday, whereas back in Nancy's life, it used to last maybe two weeks or a month. Oh, that my is goodness. A, that is a vast <laughs> improvement, and, yeah, you know, yes. we embrace that, and, you yes. know, we celebrate that. So that's a wonderful Thank thing. You. Nancy, we are going to take our last commercial break. When I come back, I want to talk about your books. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Box Me In. I am with Miss Nancy Verdon today. She was uh, diagnosed with recurrent major depression back in 2005, but has made wonderful leaps and bounds since then. And uh, she has written a book, or a couple of books, and one on the way. The first one's called Call to Live, A Chronicle of Recovery After Attempted Suicide. Now, um, Nancy, I know part of your therapy back in 2011, you started to, you know, act like a kid again and color and paint. Uh, <laughs> but I'm assuming uh, writing this book was also part of the therapy process for you? No, um, nobody assigned it to me. But. <laughs> I mean, but it helped you heal to write it, or did you? Well, no, I guess, it, let me ask, when did you start yeah. writing it? I started writing it in the hospital. Okay. okay. Now, when I was there, I was actually on the medical ward still, and a psychiatrist came by to visit me. She handed me a pad of paper and a pen and said, write. That was okay. it. Okay. I thought, okay, well, she didn't know I was a writer. She didn't know that I enjoy writing. But I hadn't journaled much before in my life at all. I think maybe once a year or something. And I thought, why not? It'll give me something to do. So I started to write down the story, and after that I started to feel compelled to put it on paper. Mm -hmm. Part of that, I'm sure, was that I had never told anybody before what I was feeling. So it was, it was kind of a, you know, that, it was that outlet in many ways for me. And I had no intention for that to be a book. I had no intention <laughs> of that to ever be something anybody would read. Okay. But about a half a year later, I thought this could help people maybe. And then I was going to put a false name on it. <laughs> 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 and then about another half a year later, I thought, yeah, I'm going to go for it. <laughs> there you oh. go. And we're glad you went for it. <laughs> okay. Um, so what, what will people find in this book? Is just your journey from 2011 until, or what? What is it? What's in the book? It, for the most part, it starts on the day that I attempted suicide, and mm -hmm. goes for one year. And you are looking at the process of recovery, and it, in some ways, I've had somebody tell me it doesn't make any sense because you, I'm, I'm moving forward, and I'm going, yeah, by golly, I'm going to grab life, and this is great. Mm -hmm. And the next day, I'm like, yeah, kill me now. <laughs> it, the mood was just, the mood was kind of crazy, but that's how it is when you're mm -hmm. recovering. Um, I love that you used the word continuum earlier mm -hmm. because I was taught that that's what it's like, and it certainly is. Mm 
at the very beginning, there's despair, and at the other end, there's I love life and there's joy, okay? So how do you get from despair to I love life and joy? Well, it, it's an, go up a few steps, fall back two, go up a few steps, fall back some, mm-hmm. and that's how it works. And we get really hard on ourselves when we don't have the joy, and unfortunately, supports get hard on us when we don't have the joy right away. Mm-hmm. But it, it has taken a long time for me to get to the joy. I think I'm there now, which is just crazy cool. Uh-huh. But, <laughs> but I think I'm there now. And but it's it's steps. It's little 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 steps, like you said earlier. Yeah. So I can I can hear it in your voice. In <laughs> I can hear it in your voice. So that's what people are going to see in their book. They're going to see little steps, and it's only the first year. So a lot of those steps don't seem to be going very far, and they weren't, but they were they were important. Yeah, Nancy was making progress. So hey, <laughs> small steps, big steps. Nancy was making progress. That's that's what we need to celebrate. Yes. And your your second book, always the fight, a living testimony of what of what only God can do. Um, now, I kind of read the blurb on your website, and it, it, I'm pausing here. Um, it was very it was very much of an impact because I read this particular part where you're having this conversation with your father. And yes. he said something like, uh, I guess you guys were selling stuff off at the family house. And, yes. some, and, and he was very nonchalant. And he says, uh, besides, it's not only a house, it's not about the house, it's about family. And you were kind of looking at him puzzled, like, what family are you talking about? Um, because my childhood family was violent and hostile. Okay. okay. And that particular home that we were leaving was a country setting. And the outdoors had been my source of refuge. Okay. okay. So I didn't want to leave. And in a very rare, vulnerable moment, I expressed that to him. And that was his uh, flippant answer back. Okay. Now, you know, in my experience, a lot of mental um, health issues are passed on from family member to family member, reflecting back and going through all that you've gone through, would you say, looking back at some of your family members and saying, okay, now this all makes sense to me, why I'm where I'm at now? Yes, in a way. In a way. But I'm also learning that the why isn't so important. Gotcha. Because I I have been in the past and and still try not to be (laughs) and can fall into it. In fact, it's what happened to me Sunday when I was depressed. Okay. I can fall back into the hurt, the, the past. I can say, oh, this is why, this is why, this is why. And all that does is perpetuate the pain of the why. Mm-hmm. What really helps, and, and I guess because taking into consideration your audience here, I am concerned that if I say, oh, this is why, and somebody can't relate to that particular why, sure. they might dismiss how they feel. And that would be unfortunate. Understood. So, yeah, it, the the why is not that important. Um, it's important to discuss it. I needed to discuss it. I needed to talk about it a lot, actually, mm-hmm. and that's okay. But you might not need to talk about it, and that's okay too. Um, yeah. We all have different yes. treatment plans. We all have different. <laughs> we all have different roads to, to healing. So, yeah. I mean, it's a very valid point you make. Now, now that you've experienced all of this, and you've you've you know. Um, accepted the fact that this is going to be um, a continual healing process for you. What advice or tips, pointers would you give to a loved one of somebody to assist them in going through this growth process? 
Okay, first of all, accept that it could be a long haul. Okay. And that your commitment to this person is going to be long term. Mm -hmm. So don't sign up for more than you can do. If you've got somebody saying to you, I need you to be at my house every day for six hours so that I can just talk and talk and talk, and you can't sustain that, there's no reason to start it. Mm-hmm. So you can draw some boundaries right around yourself that are important that keep you healthy. First of all, then you don't end up becoming that person's savior, which they you can't be, and they have to learn how to handle and manage their own depression. So... Even coming in and saving them every minute of the day as far as, you know, trying to make them feel better and being their cheerleader, et cetera, could, could slow their healing down. But not only that, but you're going to, you're going to burn out. Mm-hmm. So when, when you burn out, what happens? You cease being helpful. So if your term, if your, if your intent is to be there long term and to be committed to this person long term, then do only what you can do. And be consistent because the fact that you are there and doing something is way more important than how much you do. Gotcha. That's an important point to get across. Gotcha. And, and, you know, sometimes when we love people or we feel like we're friends, you know, with somebody, you know, there's this, this inclination that, you know, I got to go all in, you know, but you need to realize that all in is not sustainable. Six months down the road, um, a month down the road, because, you know, I do have my own obligations. I do have my own emotional health. And, you know, um, it's okay to I can I can give you 20 minutes a day consistently, but I can't give you two hours. And for the person who is looking for that life raft, 20 minutes might be okay. It's going to be way more than nothing, which is what (laughs) you're going to get if you burn out and quit. That's right. That's right. I, I know that I asked some friends to call me every day of the week, or I think it was every day, and it was a couple of friends, and they were they were going to take turns kind of thing, you know, and uh-huh. I was going to get a phone call every day, and they signed up, sure enough, and then it didn't happen, okay? When, with me being completely depressed and feeling alone and hopeless, that was actually n- not helpful, okay? Mm-hmm. That, yeah. was, that was actually damaging to some degree. But they didn't know that when I said every day, I meant every day. And it's Mm -hmm. very important to keep your promises, so don't make promises you can't keep. Gotcha, gotcha. Very, very good pointers for, um, you know, somebody trying to assist somebody out of uh, depression. So uh, good tips. Now, Nancy, um, unfortunately, we have uh, been wonderfully chatting for an hour here and I'm at the end of my show and it just always goes so fast for me. (laughs) I've enjoyed talking to you so much. Um, My guest today has been Miss Nancy Verdon. Please visit her website, Nancy Verdon. That's uh, V-I-R-D-E-N dot com. And Nancy, how do people pick up a copy of your books? Amazon's got them. Okay, good stuff. And if you stuff. want a signed copy, you can contact me through the website, and I'll we can work that out. Good deal, good deal. Okay, Nancy, I thank you so much for hanging out with me today. I wish you continued happiness and continued healing. Thank you so much for being with me. All right. That is all for this week's show. I'll be back next week at the same time. Until then, remember when it comes to your dreams, the words can't and won't should never slow you down. There is always space to change and to grow. Don't be boxed in. Live your very best life. I am your host, Lana Reed, and I will see you all next week. Bye.